Well, if you have a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, we continue to make our way through the gospel of Luke uh, from start to finish. And this morning we're in Luke chapter 21, in particular verses 5 through 38. So a pretty big chunk. It'll be helpful for you to have um, the Bible open and to be able to look at the word as, as we go along. I'll be preaching out of the CSB version of the Bible, um, but it'll be really similar to, to what you've got there. We have great English translations. There's lots of them. They're wonderful. But, uh, but if you've got a phone or a tablet or something, you can pick this ESV and follow along there. Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 38. And there's a sort of a bare bones outline on the back of the bulletin there, if that's helpful for you to, to follow along. Um, everybody's had the experience of trying to stay awake for something. That's something that happens pretty regularly. So even last night, so I, I was going to talk about the 1992 World Series that I tried to stay up for with the, the Blue Jays and the Braves. But um, even last night, I was watching Oklahoma play Kansas State, and I wanted to see the end of that game, and I fell asleep. So I was doing the best I could, but couldn't stay awake for the whole thing. Um, and uh, that's something that, that everybody understands. We start to get tired. I mean, with something like that, it's, it's hard to stay awake. You've got your body working against you. Oftentimes, you know, at night because you're tired and it's been a long day, maybe, and you've got your environment working against you because it's quiet and it's it's dark outside. It's an easy situation to get to get lulled to sleep. But as Jesus is going to show us, it's just as easy to fall asleep spiritually. Kind of comes back to that theme time and time again throughout this passage in Luke. It's easy to fall asleep spiritually, but we don't want to do that. Because the thing the Christian is staying awake for is nothing less than the return of Christ, is what he teaches us here in Luke 21. As he says in our passage, the kingdom of God is near. Now, I'm not going to read the whole passage up front. Again, it's a, it's a long one, but we'll read all these verses as, as we work our way through the passage. But just so we know where we're headed, we're going to see four main imperatives in this passage. Four things that as Christians, we should walk away from this passage saying, okay, I need to be doing these four things from this passage. So first, don't be deceived when it comes to Jesus's return. Second, be amazed that Jesus predicts the unpredictable. Third, don't marvel at the things of this world. And then finally, be ready for Jesus's return. So let's see what this passage is about. Luke sets it up for us well. Verse five, as some were talking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God. Jesus said, these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left on another that will not be thrown down. Teacher, they asked him, so when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? So the disciples are in Jerusalem. There's this huge temple that's in Jerusalem. It's the center of life for the Jews, the center of political life, social life, most importantly, religious life. You're standing there in the temple complex and they're marveling at it. They're admiring the temple. And Jesus tells them there's a day coming when that whole complex and Jerusalem, the city it's in, will be destroyed. When there won't be one stone left upon another there in the temple, completely destroyed. And of course, that, that's shocking to the disciples. So it would be very similar, although for them it would have been more intense than this, but you can at least get a picture. It would be like if somebody told you, hey, pretty soon Winston-Salem demolished. Not one brick left on another brick in that whole city. That would be a crazy thing to think about. Well, that's the kind of thing that would have been stirred up in the disciples when they hear Jesus say the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed. So they obviously want to know more details about it. 
they ask the exact same questions that we would ask. If somebody said that about our city, they ask him when it's going to be destroyed because that's significant. It's going to be destroyed. You want to know when it's going to be destroyed. But, but Luke seems to be letting us know they're asking about another event too. So in verse seven, when they say teacher, so when will these things, plural, when will these things happen? It looks like they're asking about more than just the single event of the destruction of Jerusalem. No, it, it looks like they're also asking about when Jesus will be coming back at the end of the world. And we don't have to speculate about that because we have three synoptic gospels. You may have heard that term before. So there's the gospel of John. It's pretty unique among the gospels for lots of different ways. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, pretty similar, record a lot of the same events. So this is what we're told about this account. It's a more full version. This is Matthew chapter 24, verse three. The disciples said, tell us, when will these things happen? And what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So Jesus, what he's about to tell them and us, he's not just giving details about the destruction of Jerusalem. He's also giving details about his second coming, about the end of the world. Well, look at where he starts, verse eight. Then Jesus said, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is near. Don't follow them. When you hear of wars and rebellions, don't be alarmed. Indeed, it is necessary that these things take place, take place first, but the end won't come right away. Okay, so Jesus is, is talking about some things that will happen before the destruction of Jerusalem and before his second coming. Look again, the middle of verse 9. He says, it's necessary that these things take place first, but the end won't come right away. And this is our first main point this morning. Don't be deceived when it comes to Jesus's return. Don't be deceived when it comes to Jesus's return. So he gives a list of things that will begin to happen at the very beginning of the Christian church's history and will continue to happen all throughout the church's history. Things we've seen happen for the last 2000 years. So, so the point is, these are not necessary indicators of the end of Jerusalem, but they're also not necessary indicators of the end of the world and of Jesus's second coming. Let's look at these non-indicators. Second sentence of verse eight. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is near. Don't follow them. So first non-indicator, people will claim they are the Messiah. And if you haven't looked at human history, this happens, it happens a startling amount where people will say that they are sent from the Lord or they'll even say that they're Jesus on the heels of Christianity. There are fake messiahs that's happened all throughout the course of human history. It'll continue to happen. And a question for you, if you're here and you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about Jesus, you're probably familiar with some of these times where there'd be a false messiah, somebody that says they're Jesus. So the question for you is to read through the gospel stories and think about how Jesus looks different from other fake messiahs that have come along. And you will see a ton of glaring differences. So not only in Jesus's wisdom and his level-headedness and his thoughtfulness, he's not a fanatic, but also most importantly, in his self-giving love. So when you see those fake messiahs, they are always in it for themselves. They're always gathering things to themselves. You see it all throughout human history. Jesus is the only one who said he was the Messiah who gave himself. 
see it all throughout the gospel stories and it culminates in the cross. He, he doesn't fit the mold of other humans who have claimed to be the savior of the world. But of course, there are these other ones, these false messiahs. Jesus says, don't follow them. They're fake. He says their presence is not an indicator that I'm coming back. Verse 10, then he told them, nation will be raised up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be violent earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places, and there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven. So in verse 10, he's talking about kingdoms going to war with one another, nations going to war with one another. But, but look at verse 9. When you hear of wars and rebellions, don't be alarmed. Indeed, it is necessary that these things take place first, but the end won't come right away. So the presence of wars in the world, they're, they're not a necessary indication that Christ is, is coming back. But of course, we, we can pause for a minute and think about this. Christians sometimes talk like that is the case. So if you've been a Christian for a while, then you've probably heard that kind of talk. So during the Cold War and Desert Storm and the invasion of Afghanistan, and most recently with Russia invading Ukraine. Don't you sometimes hear Christians talk that way? Oh, this is it. Here it is. I'm confident. Jesus is coming back. These are the things that are happening to show us that, that he's coming back right away. But see, there have always been wars between countries. There's always been wars between nations. And that's why in verse 9, Jesus tells us not to be alarmed with these things, at least not alarmed that they mark the return of Christ. We're not supposed to see the presence of wars as a necessary indication that Christ is, is coming back right now. And that's why when, when a believer is, is telling us about the signs they see that indicate Christ's return, a good response is maybe. It's a great response. Could be, but we don't know. These things have been going on for a long time. Jesus says, don't be alarmed. They're not a necessary indicator. Look at the second non-indicator, verse 11. There will be violent earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places, and there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven. So Jesus tells us natural disasters, like, like earthquakes, they will occur in, in church history. But again, those things aren't a necessary indicator that the destruction of Jerusalem is coming right away or the end of the world. He says, neither are famines or plagues. Jesus doesn't say this in our passage, but it's, it's undeniably true. Famines and plagues have existed since the fall of man. Back in Genesis 3, they've been occurring over and over again. And so these things aren't necessary indicators of the end of the temple or the end of the world. And it, to shift gears, neither is persecution. Verse 12. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. Verse 16, you will even be betrayed by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. They will kill some of you. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. So persecution is something Jesus tells these, these disciples to expect, but not necessarily to indicate the coming destruction of Jerusalem or for us a necessary indicator that the end of the world is, is about to come. So we, we know the gospel, by its very nature, it produces opposition. It always has, and, and it always will. So listen to what Jesus says in John 7, verse 7. He says, the world hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. 
So, you know, you can't explain the gospel without talking about sin because there's no context for the good news. It's only good news when it's set against the backdrop of the bad news that we actually need saving because we're sinners. Well, when you mention the bad news, humans in our flesh, our own sinful nature, we do not want to hear about that. Sinners, apart from God's grace, don't want to hear that they're sinners. That's what Jesus says. The world hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. So as we share the gospel, the, the world is not going to like that. But it's not even just our sharing of the gospel. It's also the way we live our lives. So this is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Like Jesus says here, that persecution can even come from family members. So as Christians, we, we need to be prepared that by and large, people aren't going to like what we believe. They're not going to like the way we live our lives. So that's going to bring with it persecution. But look at what Jesus tells the disciples. Verse 13. This will give you persecution. This will give you an opportunity to bear witness. Therefore, make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time. For I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Now, we need to understand that what Jesus is saying here, it doesn't contradict what we're told by his spirit in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Listen to what he says there. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So in our passage, Jesus isn't telling us, don't give any thought to how you will talk to non-Christians about the gospel. Don't give any thought about how you will answer charges against Christianity. No, he's not saying that. I think what he's talking about is more of the rhetorical form that our answers will take. Don't, don't work to polish up your answers. So you might remember this. The New Testament was written in Greek. What we have here is a, an English translation of it. Well, the Greek word in verse 14 for, for that idea of prepare beforehand, that was a word they would use to talk about practicing a speech or practicing a dance, you know, spending time on it. So I, I think what Jesus is saying is you won't need to have mock debate practice to get your answers ready. I think what he's saying is, as long as you know the Christ, and as long, as long as you know the good news about Christ from the scriptures, God will be faithful to give you the particular form of your arguments when those time come, when that time comes. That as Christians, what we need to do is just be faithful, just to present the simple gospel to the world and, and trust God with the results. He'll, he'll be the one in charge of how that sharing comes across to other people. And isn't that good news? Doesn't that take the pressure off? Because your responsibility as a Christian and my responsibility isn't to make the gospel look good to the world. That's just not part of our job description. No, our job is just to faithfully relay the simple message of the gospel and trust God with the results. He's the one that has to do those things. So again, Jesus says persecution will always exist against the Christian gospel. In fact, there's places in the world today where that persecution takes the form of murder, just like Jesus talks about here. And that's happened in many places throughout the history of Christianity. So again, back to the main point, persecution isn't a necessary indicator of the end of Jerusalem here or for our case, the end of the world and, and Jesus's return. So there's always gonna be people who, who point to wars and famines persecution and these other things and say, see, this is it. 
Jesus is about to come back. And, and he certainly could be about to come back. But what, what he's telling us is these sorts of events don't make that clear. It's not for us. When it comes to predictions about the times of Jesus's return, we should adopt Jesus's posture in Mark 13, verse 32. And that's where he says, concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. Watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. We don't know when Christ is returning. So, so we don't want to talk like we do. Verse 8, then he said, watch out that you are not deceived. So don't be deceived when it comes to Jesus' return. But Jesus does tell these disciples how to know when the destruction of Jerusalem is about to take place. At least he gives one sign that they could recognize, okay, this thing is coming immediately. Verse 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies and recognize that its desolation has come near. So the clear indicator that Jerusalem is about to be abolished by their enemies is when those enemy armies surround the city. And Jesus has already made it clear it would be completely demolished. The whole city, the temple in particular. And here's our second main point this morning. Be amazed that Jesus predicts the unpredictable. Be amazed that Jesus predicts the unpredictable. Look back uh, to what he says about the temple in verse 6. These things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left on another that will not be thrown down. This is something no one would have been expecting. That's why the disciples immediately ask him questions about it. Nobody would have thought this was going to come to pass, that the temple would be destroyed. So, so first of all, just so we understand, the temple was huge. It was not a small structure. It was huge. So the, the outer wall of the temple was four and a half football fields long, big. The center of the temple was around 12 or 13 stories high. So we're, we're talking about a huge structure, but it wasn't just big. It was also significant. It was the center of the capital city of Jerusalem. It was also the center of uh, economic life, political life. But again, like we said, most importantly, religious life. So the thought that God's people, this city and the temple at the center of it would be destroyed was crazy to them. They never thought that that would happen. It, it would be like if you woke up one morning and Washington, D.C., so the center of political life had been destroyed. And then in our country, New York City, probably the center of economic life destroyed. But then every like-minded gospel preaching church destroyed. If all of that had happened. That's the kind of thing that was all bound up in Jerusalem, all bound up in the temple. So for the Jews in his day, that was unthinkable. But Jesus makes this crazy prediction. And see, he, he doesn't just say it will be destroyed at some point in the future. It's easy to make predictions like that. Sometime this city won't be here. He doesn't say that. No, he puts a timetable on it. Look down at verse 31. He says, in the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all things take place. Okay, now a generation is about 40 years. So Jesus is saying this around 30 AD. So you take 30 AD, you add 40 years, you get to 70 AD. Okay, well, we're on the other side of 70 AD, so we can look back at the history books. Did anything significant happen to Jerusalem in 70 AD. 
The answer is yes. So in 66 AD, a group of Jews in Jerusalem staged a rebellion against Rome. Remember, Rome was the ruler at that point. So they staged this rebellion. Rome couldn't deal with it right away because Nero, who's this really bad emperor, died. And then there was a struggle for power. So there were a handful of kings that was rapid succession. But then eventually, there's this guy, Vespasian. He, he comes on the throne in 69 AD, and then he sends his son Titus with an army of around 100,000 soldiers to put down this rebellion in Jerusalem. They get there in 70 AD, and the Romans destroy the city. They destroy the temple. They destroy all of Jerusalem. So it turns out Jesus has predicted the unpredictable. They're saying everybody else thought sounded crazy. Jesus predicts it. He puts a timetable on it. Of course, we see this all the time in Scripture, that God predicts the future. And see, the thing about the way Jesus does it, it's, it's different. We've talked about this before. It's different than the way that other prophets in the Old Testament, for example, would prophesy about something. So if you read those accounts in the Old Testament, it's always made explicit that God is the one who's giving them the information. They always make that clear. So I'll give one example. This is Genesis 41. The patriarch Joseph is in jail. And he's given information about Pharaoh's dream to interpret it for him. But this is what he says. Joseph tells Pharaoh, this interpretation is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. See, that's how human prophets operate. They're always pointing back to the Lord because they're just an instrument and he's worked through them. But when Jesus makes prophecies like this one in our passage, there's no indication that those prophecies are given to him the way there is with human prophets, merely human prophets. No, these prophecies originated in Christ, and that's because he's God. Jesus is God. So, so what should our response be to this prediction by Jesus? We should be amazed. Everything Jesus says comes true all the time. That's an amazing thing. Look at verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. His words always come true. His words always come to pass. In the past, I've been notorious for forgetting about which night is bath night for our younger kids. And so I'm always surprised when it happens, even though it's always the, the same group of nights. And there's times where one of the kids will say, hey, can we do this thing after supper, whatever the thing is? And I'll say, yeah, we can do that thing. And then I'm reminded that it's bath night. And then I have to renege. And I have to say, oh, we actually can't do that thing because I forgot that it's, it's bath night. Now, I'm not trying to be deceitful when that happens, but, but my words were still wrong. It never happens with Jesus. He never deceives on purpose, but he never deceives at all because he's right about everything. His words always come to pass. Everything he says is true. And, and we need to remember this, especially as we move through the rest of our passage, especially the part about Jesus's second coming. Everything he says is true. He's a trustworthy king. And when it comes to the prophecies like the destruction of Jerusalem, he shows himself to, to be a miraculous king. He certainly deserves our worship, doesn't he? We see it in times like this. Verse 6, these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left on another that will not be thrown down. So be amazed that Jesus predicts the unpredictable. But, but we don't always marvel at Jesus the way we should. We don't always do that. In fact, there's, there's times where instead we marvel at the created things of this world. So, so in terms of the temple, we need to remember why this prediction was so surprising to everyone. 
It's because the temple was so big and beautiful and such a significant establishment. Pe people thought it would never topple. So remember the disciples' amazement with the temple. That's Jesus' springboard into this entire passage. So back in verse 5, somewhere talking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God. Our third point this morning, don't marvel at the things of this world. Don't marvel at the things of this world. So the temple was a beautiful structure. It's what the people in verse 5 are talking about, how the stones are so fancy and the temple's fancy and the whole thing is so nice and so valuable. The temple was an easy thing for, for people to marvel at. And we know that feeling. If you've, if you've ever been to Washington, D.C., lots of buildings and monuments that are big and important and significant, easy to marvel at, or New York City, the buildings there, or Chicago or some other big city. But we also do a, a decent amount of marveling in our own homes, right? Sometimes we marvel at our house. We marvel at our cars or, or our electronic devices or something else that our money has bought. There, there's all sorts of shiny stuff in this world to marvel at. But look at what Jesus tells the marvelers of the temple, verse 6. These things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left on another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus tells them, you can marvel now, but a day is coming when all of these things will be destroyed. All of these things will, will be gone. And see, when we're marveling at the shiny things of our world, I think Jesus would tell us the same thing. One day, all these things will be gone. There's times where we'll get a toy for one of the kids. Oftentimes, it's a free thing, like a Happy Meal or something. And they like the toy. And you'll look at it. And as a parent, you discover this toy is going to break within a day because it's all contingent on this little plastic tab. And that thing is going to break the second time they use it. It's a horrible situation. And so you prep your kids. Hey, just so you know, I'm telling you, this toy is not going to last. And what we're trying to do there is to keep our kids from putting their hope in that toy so that their expectations are, are tempered. Well, that's, the, that's the kind of thing that Jesus wants us to do in this world. So he, he wants us to know that everything in this world, it all has a shelf life. It, it won't last forever. It's not worth putting your hope in. And in particular, there's two things that will end up taking them from us. All the things you have, one of two things will take all of those things away from you eventually. The first is your own death. So if you die before Christ returns, all of those things that you enjoy, all the things in this world, you'll, you'll lose it all. Don't forget the parable Jesus tells us in Luke 12 about the rich man who built bigger and bigger barns to store out more grain. And then he thinks he's just going to get to relax and eat and drink and be happy for the rest of his life. Listen to Luke 12, 20. Jesus says, you fool. This very night, your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be then? So the second you die, you lose all the stuff that's in this life. Every bit of it. But, but even if you're alive to see Jesus' return, it'll still be taken from us. Listen to the way 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 talks about this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved. So Jesus' disciples are marveling at the temple. The question for us is, okay, what am I marveling at in this world? What are the things where I'm really standing back and it takes my breath away and I'm putting my hope in those things, these created things that we have around us? What are we marveling at in the world? And just as important, once you recognize it, you regularly remind yourself that one day that thing will be gone thing I'm marveling at. One day it will be 
gone, that car, that phone, that pool, the government, things that we're impressed with, that vacation house, that new tool, whatever it is, one day it'll be taken away from us. So don't marvel at the things of this world. So Jesus tells the disciples, the temple in all of Jerusalem, it's going to be taken away from them within a generation. They're amazed by that. They're startled by that. But, but thankfully, Jesus doesn't just give bad news. He never just gives bad news. He's always setting up the gospel. He gives bad news in order to give good news. He gives bad news in order to say, and this is how to avoid this thing. This is how to get out from under it. This is how to get saved from this danger. So in terms of the coming destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, look at what he tells his followers to do. Verse 21. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those inside the city must leave it. And those who are in the country must not enter it because these are days of vengeance. He tells them the attack on Jerusalem, it'll be so bad that you need to take off. That's what you need to do. That's the path for you to be saved from that coming destruction is to leave. And if you're outside of the city, don't come in the city. Verse 23, woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. So he's talking about how bad it's going to be. And then obviously when you're pregnant, you know this, if you've been pregnant or if you have young children, traveling is, is slower. And that's what he's saying here. It'll be hard for you to, to get away. In verse 22, he refers to those days as days of vengeance, and, and they were. You read the history of the destruction of Jerusalem, it was intense how bad it was. So during this attack, Rome cut off the food supply, so there was a famine. Nobody had any food. There's multiple reports that talk about parents consuming their own children. That's a thing that happened. That's how bad it was in 70 AD. One account from Roman soldiers says that once the fighting was done, you couldn't see a bare spot in the ground because of all the corpses. In fact, the estimates at the time were, were that a million Jews had died as a result of Rome's destroying Jerusalem. Well, those are definitely days of vengeance. And whose vengeance is it that Jesus is talking about here? Verse 22 makes it clear. He says, because these are days of vengeance to fulfill all the things that are written. He's talking about things written in the Old Testament scriptures. In particular, he's talking about God's warnings about not rebelling against the Lord. Because that's the Old Testament. The Old Testament is he makes Israel his people, and then he's regularly telling them, be faithful to me, and they're regularly rebelling against him. And he had always said, if you continue to rebel, then there will be judgment. This is Leviticus 26, verse 27. Think about it with the destruction of Jerusalem in mind. God says, and if you do not obey me, but act with hostility toward me, I will act with furious hostility toward you. I will also discipline you seven times for your sins. You will eat the flesh of your sons. You will eat the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your shrines, and heap your lifeless bodies on the lifeless bodies of your idols. I will reject you. I will reduce your cities to ruins and devastate your sanctuary. So the destruction of Jerusalem was God judging his people for their unrepentant rebellion against him. And see, that's because our God is a good God. Now you might think, how does that work? These don't sound like good attributes, but, but he's good in this way. He can't overlook sin. He can't sweep it under the rug the way that his sinners were oftentimes prone to do. He can't ignore it. He's too good for that. He has to deal with it. And if you're here and you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about Jesus, this, this is so important for you to understand. So you, just like all of us, is a sinner. God can't ignore that sin. 
He, he has to punish it. But see, the destruction of Jerusalem was just a preview of a greater judgment that was coming in the future. So I don't usually have this many illustrations about our kids, but you have to draw from what you work with. So, so our daughter, Annie, she had a birthday this past week. And we usually let the kids, because we're, we're soft pushover parents in this way, we'll let the kids open a present the day before their birthday. So they can open one the day before their birthday. You might've done something like that, maybe with Christmas. We let our kids open a present on Christmas Eve. So it's like the kids are getting a small taste of what's coming in the future, right? So there's this more full thing that's happening tomorrow. Here's a tiny taste of it, a, a tiny preview. Well, see, that's, that's a good version of it. The bad version of it is what we see here. So, so this is a small picture of the destruction of Jerusalem. It's a small taste of the fuller judgment that's coming, that's coming on the entire world. That, that future judgment, it won't be localized to one piece of land in the Middle East. No, it, it'll be a judgment over the entire world. And we see that pivot take place. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and then he pivots to talk about the entire world. We see it first in verse 24. They will be killed by the sword and be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So again, 70 AD, God's enemies, they destroy Jerusalem. They capture God's people. And, and at this point, the nations would be feeling pretty good about themselves. You know, they would be thinking, man, who, who is this God and his people? We just destroyed. We just devastated their entire city. We destroyed this temple. But see, here's what, what almost always happens in the Old Testament. God raises up a nation to judge his people for their sins. And then God comes and judges that nation. That's almost always what happens in the Old Testament. That's what seems to be happening here. So the Gentiles have destroyed Jerusalem as a judgment against God's people. But then this following section, beginning in verse 25, is a prophecy of judgment against all of God's enemies. A prophecy of judgment against the world. Verse 25 then there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars, and there will be anguish on earth among nations, bewildered by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and expectation of the things that are coming on the world because the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So like verse 25 tells us, all of this is happening to the nations. And the language that's used here, signs and anguish and roaring sea and people fainting and the heavens being shaken, it's all the language used in the Old Testament to symbolize coming judgment. It's kind of like in, in a, a movie when the music changes and gets ominous and scary, you know something bad is about to happen. So something bad is about to happen to the entire world of God's enemies here. And we see what it is in verse 27. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now that scene may sound familiar to you. In particular, there's some ladies in the church that went through Daniel recently. That's where this phrase is from. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. That's where the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days, who's God the Father. And in Daniel 7, the picture is he's given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. So the event of verse 27, that's Jesus's kingship being made known to the world. That's his second coming. It's when he comes back to judge the world. It's just like he told the disciples in Acts 1 verse 11, or the angels tell them, they say, this same judge, uh, Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him go. So he goes up on the clouds after he's resurrected. He returns in the clouds to judge the world. Verse 27, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud 
with power and great glory. Middle of verse 35, for it will come on all who live on the face of the whole earth. And then in the words at the end of verse 36, everyone will have to stand before the son of man. So the beginning of our passage, talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, this second part, talking about Christ's second coming to judge the world. Listen to the way we say it in our church's confession of faith. We say, we believe that the end of the world is approaching, that at the last day, Christ will descend from heaven and raise the dead to final retribution, judgment, or glorification, that a solemn separation will then take place, that the wicked will be judged to endless punishment. So everyone in this room will, will stand before the Son of Man on that day, every single one of us. And of course, there's, there's only two ways for our sin to be dealt with. There's only two options. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, don't know what you think about the gospel, don't know what you think about Jesus, this is the part, out of everything we said this morning, this is the part that is especially relevant to you. There's only two ways for our sin to be taken care of. He has to take care of it because God's good. Either we can bear the penalty of our sin on our own shoulders, or we can let Christ bear the penalty of our sins on his shoulders. We can let the cross count as our punishment, and that punishment has already taken place. And then all of your sins will be covered. And the way to access that isn't by working hard or moral striving, being a good person, being a religious person. No, the Bible is really clear. The way to access the work of Christ for your behalf is trust alone in Christ alone. It's merely trusting in him to do what we could never do. And then we're given his righteousness. That's the way for our sin to be dealt with. And if you're willing to talk more about that, talk to me after the service or, or send me an email, talk to one of the other pastors here about the good news of the gospel and responding through trust alone in Christ alone. But see the same Jesus who knew the fall of Jerusalem was coming 40 years before it happened, He's the same one who's telling us this future day of judgment is coming. And remember, he's right about everything. But see, as, as we close this future return of Christ, it's something that believers have to be concerned with too. Christians should be concerned with this too. And this is precisely Jesus's point at the end of our passage, verse 34. He says, be on your guard so that your minds are not dull from carousing, drunkenness, and worries of life. Or that day will come on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come on all who live on the face of the whole earth. But be alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So Jesus tells us because he's returning one day to judge the world, he says, be on guard. Be alert, he says. In our passage there, there's one major event that has to happen before Christ's return. And that's the destruction of Jerusalem. And that event has happened. So our oven in Maine, it had a timer. So we moved here from Maine. If, if you didn't know that, we moved down to North Carolina a few months ago. Our oven in Maine, it had a timer and, and you could set it. Once it hit the one minute mark, it would beep once. Basically let you know, okay, so that's your warning. The next beep you hear is that this thing in the oven is done. Well, that's what Jesus seems to be saying here. So with the destruction of Jerusalem, that single beep has sounded. Now Jesus could return at any moment. Look at the pictures that he gives us in verse 29. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. 
As soon as they come out and leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. That final beat that happens with that generation that Jesus is talking to. The temple has been destroyed, and now he says the summer is near. See, it's exactly what we see in the changes of the season, right? So at the end of winter, the, the flowers will start to bloom. When the trees in your backyard start to get their leaves back, that doesn't mean warm weather is here yet, but it means nothing else has to happen. So those leaves on your tree, as they start to grow back, they don't all fall off again and then come back. No, they, they stay there. The, the leaves popping out is the last thing that has to happen to that tree but before warm weather is here. That's what Jesus seems to be teaching us in Luke 21. Everything has happened that has to happen to precede his return, at least as far as we understand it. And, and so we're supposed to be prepared for it. How would he have us do that? Two quick things. First, turn from sin and second, pray. This is how he tells Christians to be ready for his return in this passage. First, turn from sin, second, pray. So first, be ready for Jesus' return by turning from sin. Verse 34, be on your guard so that your minds are not dulled from carousing, drunkenness, and worries of life, or that day will come on you unexpectedly like a trap. That word carousing is probably talking about like decadence or immoderation, basically ha having, no, uh, having no line that you won't cross, giving yourself as much of something, as much of the things of this world as you want. The specific example Jesus gives here is with alcohol. So alcohol can be used responsibly, but when someone carouses, they're over drinking. As Jesus says here, that's drunkenness. And, and that, by the way, is sin. God makes it really clear throughout the Bible that he doesn't want people to get drunk. He doesn't want people to be intoxicated by any substance. And he especially doesn't want his children who are supposed to be representing Jesus Christ. He doesn't want them to be drunk, to be intoxicated in any way. So we're reminded to turn away from the sin of drinking too much alcohol, but, but we can be confident Jesus is using this particular sin to point to the effect that all sin has on us. Look again at what Jesus says drunkenness does to us. Verse 34, be on your guard so that your minds are not dulled. Isn't that a perfect picture of what sin does to us as Christians? You know, the, the practice of sinning in some particular way, when we do that, when we're just giving into sin, doesn't that lead to all sorts of spiritual drunkenness where we aren't spiritually sensitive, where we're not spiritually effective? See, the Bible teaches sin does to the soul what drunkenness does to the body. Sin does to the soul what drunkenness does to the body. When, when we give into those things, it's like we're getting ourselves drunk off of them. But Jesus tells us one of the worst effects of this sort of spiritual drunkenness is we won't be alert to look out for Jesus's return. In other words, we won't be ready for it. He says, be on your guard so that your minds are not dulled from carousing, drunkenness, and worries of life, or that day will come on you unexpectedly like a trap. And the entire point of this passage is that we should be ready for Jesus's return. Verse 28, but when these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads because your redemption is near. So he's saying, don't be tipsy and, and intoxicated by the things of this world. Stand up. Verse 34, be on your guard. Verse 36, be alert at all times. So turn from sin so that your, your senses won't be dulled as you wait for Christ. But finally, pray. 
It's significant. Look what we're praying for. We're praying for strength. Verse 36, but be alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the son of man. It's easy to get drunk on the sins of this world. It's easy to get drunk. It's easy to lose our gaze on Christ. It's easy to lose our grip on Christ. So he says, pray that you'll have strength to escape all these things so that one day we can stand before the son of man. That is an important thing to pray for, for yourself. I wonder how often you pray for that. I think about how often I pray for that in particular compared to the other things that I pray for. Now, the things we pray for are hugely significant. God cares about everything in our lives, right? He certainly cares about our material well-being. He cares about our physical health. He cares about the material well-being and the health of other people that we pray for. Praise God that we get to pray for those things and God answers those prayers. But how often do you pray that you would have strength to turn from sin so you'll be ready for Christ's return? Listen, if you look at the New Testament and you compare prayer for material concerns versus this kind of prayer, you will see there is a radical emphasis on this kind of prayer over those others. It doesn't mean we don't pray for those other things, but it means that we're always praying for this thing as much or, or more. Pray that you will have strength to escape these things so one day you can stand before the Son of Man. Pray that for your brothers and sisters in Christ too, for your fellow church members. But of course, the great news is God will answer that prayer. Look at what Jesus tells the Christian back in verse 18. But not a hair of your head will be lost. Now, he's not saying the Christian will never be hurt in this life. We know that because he just talked about persecution in verse 16, where Christians can physically die. Now, when he promises the Christian, not a hair of your head will be lost, he's talking about our future life. He's saying that for the one who's trusting in Christ, Jesus will get you across the finish line to heaven. And this is really the best promise that, that the Christian has in the New Testament. If you're trusting in Jesus, God will save you. But he says here to pray for that thing that has been promised for us. As verse 36 says, pray for strength to escape these things and to be ready for Christ's return. Let's pray together. And Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful, Father, for, uh, for the fact that it is always true. It always comes to pass. We can trust everything that you tell us. Father, we, we recognize that this is a sobering passage of Scripture. Father, your judgment is sobering. And God, that's why as Christians, we've taken our hope out of ourselves in this world and put our hope in Christ because we know he's, he's our only answer to get out from under the guilt of our own sin, the, the guilt that should bring with it judgment, the kind of judgment that's pictured in, in a tiny way in the destruction of Jerusalem. And as horrible as that was, Father, we know a, a worse destruction is coming because of human sin. Father, we're so thankful for the good news of the gospel that Christ hung on the cross to take that guilt on himself and to take your judgment on himself. Father, we're so thankful that we've been able to turn our sin over to him. We pray, Father, that you would give us strength to turn from sin and to follow Christ faithfully so that, that our minds wouldn't be dulled and that we would be eagerly anticipating and looking forward to and ready 
for your return. So thankful, Christ, that one day you are coming back. We pray that as a church, we would respond accordingly for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.